This morning's reading is Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have learned, leaned from, my, from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteousness, righteous help all the days long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh, man worth it to come up here just to do this. <laughs> it's uh, so good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Nick Coleman. I'm a member here at this church. I'm also on staff with Young Life here in the area. 
um, and a missionary that this church supports. So on behalf of Young Life, thank you for your continued support. Um, we are, things are happening again with Young Life, and we're able to get together with kids, and we had a big old group of kids just a couple days ago, and I got to share with them uh, about sin and, and about the gospel and how Jesus is the answer to sin. So just thank you for your continued support in that gospel work. This morning, uh, we're going to take a quick aside from the end of the life of Abraham, um, and, and We've been kind of reflecting, even last week, about Abraham ending his life well, about passing on to the next generation, about his concern for Isaac and Rebekah and the, the next generation in the family of faith to carry on this faith, to carry on in these promises. And, and today we're going to look just at one psalm um, that is widely attributed to David and written near the end of his life. And he's looking back at the span of his life, reflecting on God's faithfulness and making some resolutions about ending his life well, about what it means to finish well. And as we consider our own lives, as we look at the span of our own lives, um, we can find in here some things that we can apply, some things that we can do in our lives, some resolutions to living and even ending our lives well. I wanted to um, bring this psalm to you because this psalm has somewhat of a special um, place in my life. This was one of the first verses that uh, during high school God got a hold of my life. And this was one of the first verses that I found, that, that I held on to, that spoke to me, that no one else had given to me. And if do you know what that means? Like, I knew lots of other verses. I had been involved in church and youth group and Awana, and um, I had memorized quite a bit, but I had seen, looked up the verses that the guy with the clown wig holds up at football games. Like, there were, there were verses that meant something to me in my life, but as God got a hold of my life and I started to read through the scriptures on my own, this is one of the first ones that I can remember that God spoke to me, and I found it, and, and it was the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and uh, it's always had that special place in my heart, and there's some journal somewhere in some box, maybe at my parents' house, where I copied down Psalm 71, verse 5, um, and said, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth, and that meant something to me at that time as a youth, and now, 20-some years later, I can look at it again with a renewed appreciation that you, O oh Lord, have been my hope from my youth. And as I look ahead to my life and what I want my life to look like as I'm peering over the hill towards middle age, and, and no matter where you are in your life, I think we can evaluate the course of our lives, and I think we can glean. So I want to talk about six resolutions towards living life well that I see that David talks about in this psalm. The first one is that I will always find my refuge in God. That I will always run to him as my rock of refuge. That, that he will be the place where I find comfort from the storm. But what, what does that mean? Like, how does that look? How can we translate that really into our lives? Is that just flowery 
ephemeral, poetic language. Maybe you're not a poem kind of person. You're like, what do you mean, rock of refuge? How does that help me? Well, I think that there's meat to this metaphor. I think that there, there is more to this rock of refuge than just a happy-sounding poetic language. I think that there is truth in the character of God, that there are promises, there, that there are substantial, tangible things that we can hold on to during the storms of life, that we can come to and lay claim to, that we can see in the character of God that he never changes, that he is always faithful, that he always keeps his promises, that he is always merciful and abounding in steadfast love, even in his justice. In Christianity, our worldview, our faith, is a faith that is rooted in absolute truth. We are a faith, a system of beliefs about truth, things that are real, that are absolutely true no matter what. We are not primarily based on feelings, on how it feels when we sing the songs, about, about how it feels to be a part of a group. Man, those, those can be good things. And God can stir up in, my, in me those emotions towards him, and he uses them, and he created me that way. But first and foremost, we must stand on the rock of God's truth, of the promises that he has spoken, of his character which never changes. Man, if it's about feelings, I'm in trouble because my feelings change. If I come in on Sunday morning thinking that I need to be ready to sing and the worship leader stands up and asks me how I'm feeling, man, some Sunday mornings, that's a bad question. I may have just had a fight with my wife. I may be real annoyed with my children. I might have just kicked the dog. If you're asking me if, my, if the center of our faith is our feelings, then I am in trouble. I mean, our worship team does such a good job of, of bringing David and the team, bringing songs of substance. I, I have this pet peeve that you hear a lot of these modern worship songs that, that I call Jesus is my boyfriend type of songs. Christian prom songs. If you can take the word God in the worship song and switch it out with Jenny or Jesse, and it's virtually the same song, maybe there's a problem. That if it's all about how I feel, and that's supposed to get me to this place of faith, then I'm in trouble. But if you ask me what I know, what I know to be true about the God who rescued me. That we can sing about our Emmanuel, the God who rescues, the God who saves, the God who is holy. Man, my emotions will follow. But let me stand on the rock. When Jesus is, is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about the two options of building your house on the sand or building your house on the rock. The rock is the foundation of his truth, of who he is. I want to stand on the rock. 
And if I'm rooted in that truth, then the Bible says I will not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Working, working with young people, it often breaks my heart the, the things that they are drawn to, the things that their emotions tell them is true. That the world wants to play on their emotions and say, isn't this justice? Isn't this really what love feels like? Isn't this really what's right? No. No. The truths of God are absolute and do not change. We must build our house on the rock. We must always find our refuge in the God who is true. And if I hold to what God says, I will not be moved or bothered. You can yell at me all you want about dwindling societal influence, uh, about being on the wrong side of history, and I'll be fine right here on the rock. I won't be bothered by it. I won't be anxious about, gosh, we as Christians don't have a voice in society anymore. Okay, I'm going to stand right here on the rock. I'm going to stand right here on the truths of God. And I'm still, I'm still going to speak the truth in love to the people around me. I'm still going to reach out with the gospel as much as I can. But I'm not moving from this rock. This rock of refuge that holds no matter what the storm might be. I will be able to endure any pressure or even persecution standing on the rock, finding refuge in who God is, in his very character, in these promises that we've been talking about as going through Genesis again and again and again and being repeated, the promises of God. But this also, what this also means that, that there's these foundations of truth is that I have to do the hard work to find these truths. I have to go digging for the truths. I have to be committed to studying God's word and finding out what those truths are that never change. I have to, the Bible has this language, and I love it in the Old Testament, where it talks about binding it to your forehead and painting it on your doorposts. And, and some people in history have taken that literally, and you can see guys, I think in Israel, even to this day, with little boxes tied to their foreheads. Man, we can't forget. We've got we to gotta dive deep. We've got to be committed to finding the truths of God's word about who he is, about the rock that never changes. We've got to be committed to coming here and gathering together and sitting under and hearing God's word read and explained and preached. I've got to be committed to... to getting plugged into a Sunday adult seminar. Man, I hope that you come and join us as we dive deep and look at truths of God starting next week. i got to be committed to coming to Tuesday morning women's Bible study or frontline men's morning Bible study. I have to be committed to be involved in a life group and, and talking about what God has spoken and the way that God's word has been explained to us. And man, those are just a list of the things that we offer here at this church. I've got to be committed to reading God's word, to spending time studying what God's word actually says. What God has actually revealed about himself. Not just, what does this mean to me or how does this feel? What does God actually say? Because that 
is the rock of refuge. That is the truth that never changes. I will find certainty and identity, joy and peace in the God of truth who never changes. The second point that I see in this psalm that I want in my life, I want for us, is that I will never forget God's consistent faithfulness. That David looks across the span of his life and sees, God, you have been faithful from even before I was born. You have been at work. Have you ever asked yourself this question? I, I, maybe it's just minds that think like mine that, that ask this question, but why does the Bible read like a history book? Wouldn't it be so much simpler if it was just a manual and do this, do that, here's what you need to do to be saved, here's how you should relate to other people, you know, go and be fruitful and multiply. Wouldn't that be easier? Like, why, why does it read like ancient stories of these obscure tribal peoples and families wandering around in the desert? Like, why do we need those stories? And I think one of the reasons, this maybe not is the fully explanatory reason, but one of the reasons is that we can see over thousands and thousands of years God's consistent character. I can see that in every circumstance, across all of time, against any opposing force, God comes through. I can see played out again and again God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love from generation to generation. Man, this, again, this is what we're talking about in the life of Abraham. Remember the promises. Remember what God has done. Remember what he has revealed to you about himself. God spoke to you. Remember. Remember how he has protected and called you out. And remember how he rescued you. Just, just yesterday in, in my Bible reading, going through the Bible, this verse came up in, in God's providential hand, Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. It says, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. God has been faithful consistently. He has never failed. He has shown up again and again and again. Do you know the story of Caleb, Joshua and Caleb and the spies? In Numbers chapter 13, God has brought the people out of Egypt. They're in the desert. They're, they've moved straight to the border of the promised land. And, and now it's time to see about going in. And they send out 12 spies. Moses sends the 12 spies, one from each of the tribes, to go and see the land, get a scouting report, maybe make a plan. We can see how we're going to go in and take the land. And the spies go in, and they come back, and this is where they're carrying the, the bunch of grapes that's so big that they have to carry it on the pole between two guys. This is that story. And 10 of the spies stand up before the people and they give this report. Yeah, the land's pretty good. There's big fruit, like you can say. See, like it's a fertile land. It's a great land. It's a great place. But there's guys in there 
and the cities are fortified, and there's armies, and we saw, like, this is not just weak nations in there. Like, they are strong. They, they got warriors in there. In fact, we even saw the descendants of Anak there, which, which is probably giants that they're talking about. We saw giants in the land. And, and there's this line that they say that I love. They say, we looked like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we looked to them. Like, we're bugs compared to them. And they thought we were bugs. Now, we didn't talk to them, and they didn't tell us we looked like bugs, but we know <laughs> we looked like bugs compared to them. We can't do it. We can't do it. We're, we should not go in there. And Caleb stands before the people. He quiet, says, Caleb quieted the people. And he says, don't you remember? Don't you remember what God has done? We were slaves in Egypt, and God sent these unbelievable, miraculous plagues that didn't touch us, but wiped out the Egyptian crops and scared them to death and killed their firstborn child's children. Don't you remember that he brought us out, that he broke the most powerful nation on earth, and then he brought us to the sea and the army was chasing us. Don't you remember that he parted the sea? Don't you remember how we walked across the sea? And then the army chased us and God gave us our first victory in battle by throwing the sea over Pharaoh's chariots and riders. We had a little song about it. Don't you remember the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea? <laughs> Don't you remember how God led us through the wilderness with a cloud, a pillar of clouds, and a pillar of fire? Don't you remember how when we didn't have enough food, bread rained down from heaven? Don't you remember what God has done again and again and again? Of course we can do this. Of course we should go in. God said he was giving us this land. He was giving us this victory. Of course we should go. But they didn't. Um, just spoiler. They didn't go in. The ten spies spread a bad report and they were afraid and they forgot. How can you forget that the seas parted? Do you have those moments in your life where you know, you knew at the time, that was a miracle, that God did that for me, that God rescued me, that was a miracle, the seas parted in my life. But the problem with us is that the further we get from that, the easier it is to remember it differently. You know, maybe it was just the wind. Maybe, maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe there was just a windy storm and we happened to get across on dry land and then the storm happened to stop when Pharaoh's army chased after us. It sounds ridiculous, but I know that I do that in my life. I don't know about you. I have to remind myself of what God has done. At the time, I knew it was a miracle. 
And he keeps rescuing me and rescuing me and rescuing me. He pulled me out of a dead, wretched sinner and gave me new life. I will never forget God's consistent faithfulness. That's what my my life to be marked by, remembering what God has done. That's why we talk about thousands of year old stories. We read about ancient peoples and see God has always showed up. He has always been faithful. And when I remember, this leads to the next point. When I remember these things, it will allow me to be filled with praise. This is so central to this psalm, central to all the psalms, central to all of our life, that I want my life to be filled with praise. I want to sing about the goodness and greatness of God. I want to overflow from my heart. He plucked me out of the gutter for his name's sake. Look at David where he says that I will praise you continually. I will sing your praises more and more. In Luke 6.45, Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I want the overflow of my heart to be worship of God. I want to be so filled with truths about his character. I want to be so filled in remembering his faithfulness. I want to be so filled with the joy of who he is that it pours out of me. And if my heart is filled with his praise, if my heart is filled with the goodness of God, then there's no room in there for anything else. As I look across the span of my life and and I think about aging well, I think about about getting older and finishing well, I don't want room in my heart for grumbling. I don't want room in my heart for these lustful desires. I don't want room in my heart for greed. I want God's praise to pour out of me. I want to be about lifting him up. Let me say that that is what you were created for. Making Jesus look glorious. Praising the name of Jesus. Forever and ever we will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And that, That's what makes heaven great. We get to sing the praises of God forever and ever and ever. And man, if you're not looking forward to that, maybe your idea of heaven needs to be adjusted. I want to be filled with praise. I want it to pour out of me. And I I want that, that overflow to reach into the lives of people around me. And that leads to the next point, that I want to proclaim God to the next generation. I want the overflow of God's goodness to be what I talk about when I sit down with my friends or when I go to work. If the most important thing in my heart is God and the gospel, then that will be what I want to talk about. Not as as a chore, not as a checklist. I need to 
to do this thing and muster up, man, I, let me tell you, when I was a kid in high school, one of the hardest and maybe worst things that we did is right around the time God was getting a hold of my life, we were handed a stack of tracts and sent to downtown Seattle to evangelize. And I'm not saying that God can't use that. And I'm not saying that, that there's anything that God can't use, and God can rescue people by any means. But for me as a teenager to feel the pressure of, I've got to tell people and see people saved, these scary-looking people in downtown Seattle, if I, that's the way that I see evangelism, if that's the way that I see telling people about God, let me be honest, I'm not going to do it. It's too scary. But... If it's people in my life who I know and care about, if I feel the responsibility to love my neighbor, and when I invite them over to dinner, I pray, and, and, when, and when God is the most important thing in my life, I want to talk about what happened. And if a kid just came to know Jesus at camp in Young Life, and the story is incredible and will blow your mind, the miracle of what God did in their life, I want to tell people about that. I want other people to see that. I want it to just pour out of me to be a natural outpouring of my relationships. Because make no mistake, it is our responsibility. Jeff talked about this last week. In talking about Abraham passing on to the next generation, he said every single one of us has the responsibility to pass on God's promises. There's no way around it in Scripture. We are called to it. God's great commission is to all of us to go therefore into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, that command is to all of us. To not be concerned, this is what Jeff said last week, to not be concerned for the next generation is to abandon our call as the people of God. We need a paradigm shift that each and every one of us has to see ourselves as ministers of the gospel. It's our job. It's all of our job to proclaim God to the next generation. Look at what David says in verse 18. God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Don't let me die. Don't let me fail until I get a chance to teach people about you, to teach the young people about your goodness. Here, here is what I believe. If I have a heartbeat, I have a mission. That when we talk about God's providence and his purposeful acting in the world, he is working out his purposes in you, in me. And that if I am here, he has me here for a reason. And he has called me to be a minister of the gospel. It's all through the New Testament. If I have a heartbeat, I have a mission. And it might look different for all of us. I mean, I don't want it to be that weighty thing that I felt as a teenager with a handful of tracts that I eventually threw on empty park benches. I don't want us to feel that weight. But there's some place in your life where God can use you to proclaim his truth to the next generation. We have different abilities and personalities. We have different spheres of influence. We have, have different mobility. We have different abilities to get around and to meet new people. But if I am here, it's for a reason. 
I can tell my nurse that I prayed for her. I can tell my neighbor that Jesus loves them. I can pray for the kids in this church, the kids who come to youth group on Wednesday nights. I can pray for the kids in the children's ministry. I can pray for anyone who might wander in. God has a plan for you, a purpose for you towards his gospel mission. John John chapter 4 is one of my favorite stories of the woman at the well. Look at the woman at the well. Of no influence, of no reputation. Everyone knew who she was as a sinner. Jesus met her and spoke to her. And she, she threw her water jar down and she ran back into town and revival started. Revival started. The Bible says that the whole village started coming out. And they said to her, like, first we heard what you said, but now we heard what he said. And we believe in this Jesus. God always acts with purpose, and you are a part of that purpose. I will proclaim God to the next generation. And if God is going to use me in his mission, he's going to shape me into a vessel for his use. He can use me right where I am. But he loves me too much to let me stay there. The way David says it is this in verse 20. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. And you will revive me again. God has let me see troubles and calamities. And my next conviction, my next resolution is a matter of perspective. That I will see my trials and troubles as God shaping me. If I really believe in providence, which I do, that God is at work, that God acts on purpose in every circumstance, then I will believe that he is at work even in the hard things in my life. That even, even in those times when God, people have sinned against me, God is at work. Just think of the story of Joseph, whose brothers beat him up, threw him in a pit, were going to kill him, decided not to, and then sold him into slavery. Awful, evil. But what he says is what you intended for evil, God intended for good, and God used that to rescue his chosen people and provide for them during those years of deep famine. That without Joseph in place in Egypt, his chosen people wouldn't be here. The line of Christ, the snake crusher, wouldn't have survived. That God was at work. And not only that is he at work, but he disciplines those he loves. The Bible is clear on that, that God is a loving father who disciplines those he loves. He loves me too much to allow me to stay in my sin. See, I have rough edges, plenty of them. Here's a statement that I heard recently that I've, that I've hold on to so tightly that there are times when he loved me enough to wound me. He loved me enough to wound me, to keep my head from getting too big, to shake me out of my sin, to put me on the right path that he had for me. And there's times in my life where, where I can see it, 
where, where I can look back and see this is why he did this. That there was a, that there was a job that, that I had lined up. And it, at my time, it was my dream job. And I knew that I was the finalist for this job, that, it, that the next meeting was going to be me getting the job. And some, through some underhanded stuff happened, and another candidate was swooped in and brought to me. I got the phone call about it in the, in the parking lot of the dentist office, never forget this in my life. And just thinking, <laughs> just trying not to cry in the dentist's office. But I can look back on that and I can see God saved me from that situation. That situation would have been bad. There was difficult things happening. The, fact, the way that it happened proved that there was bad leadership. And the way that God used me and taught me in the steps after that and what he has done to shape me since then, I wouldn't have learned if I'd have been there. There's times where I can look back and see what God was doing. And there's times where I can't. I don't know. Why would he let us get pregnant after 10 years and have the baby's heartbeat stop and take that child away? I, I, I will never know. I, I don't want to minimize the pain that we experience Sometimes to tell people who are going through pain that all things work together for good is not a loving thing to say. Do you know that? Like, I, like, but on some level, I have to believe that. I have to hold on to that. And I may never know on this earth what it was he was doing, but he was doing something. God is always at work. I hold on to the hope of God's providence, that he is purposefully acting in the world, that he is using whatever happens in my life to shape me, to move me, to guide me on his path for my life. And again, it's not simple answers. Did God send the pandemic so that we could remodel? No. Nobody's saying that. We don't believe that. But but in a sense, there, that is one of the maybe 10 billion things that he was doing. Christ plays in 10,000 places. God is doing so much in this very moment. We, would, we, can't, we will never comprehend all that he's doing, but we trust. We have faith that what he's doing is for our good, that all things do work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose... And again, that verse is not an easy, simple verse that we can just throw around because there is a qualifier on the end of that, right? For good to those who are called according to his purpose. It's not just, God works all things together for good, I'm going to win the lottery. No. He works all things together for his good in us and through us. And sometimes his good for us is painful. But my perspective will be that God is using this in my life, that he loved me enough to wound me, to not leave me as I was, as I am. Because storms are going to come, right? We just know that about life. And so if we don't have this, this perspective, where is the hope? There's a quote that is widely attributed to Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher. 
one of my favorite absolute quotes, where he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That the storm's going to come, the waves are going to come. But if I, if I allow it to push me to my rock of refuge, it's a good thing. That that wave was for my good. That that storm God is using in my life. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So to, to wrap it up, in conclusion, we, we see that the entire focus here is not on me, but on God. That, that, that it's not about my wants and my life and my happiness or even my worldly success that through all these things, through what David says again and again, rescue me so that I can praise you. Let it be about you. Lift me up again so that I can tell your might to another generation. Let it be about you. I want to talk, live, relate in a way that is God-centered and not me-centered. Rescue me so that I can praise you. Show yourself faithful in me. Demonstrate your steadfast love through me. And I will worship you. I will tell others about you. Again, this is our only hope. This is our only hope. In the New City Catechism, which is a great resource uh, out there that, that borrows from the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that I belong to God, that I am not my own, but belong to him both body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. My only hope is a life that's God-centered. My only hope is that all this is for something and that something has to be him. Everything in me will reflect that. I need to be gospel-centered. Bethany, we talk about this all the time. We want to be gospel-centered, and the gospel is about what God has done through Jesus Christ. It's, it's about him. It's about Jesus. It's about singing praises to the lamb who was slain. That's what it's all about. And this is so hard because the world right now is going all in on selling you the me-centered life. They are pushing hard that it's all about you. That it's about your best life. That it's about the power inside of you. That it's about your dreams. That it's about what feels good to you. That it's about you finding love, not in the biblical sense, but in some weird sense that the world has made up. That it's about fairness for you. The world is pushing all in on self-actualization. About my rights, my autonomy. About my personal truth. Do you know, I just thought of that this, this week. 
Do you know that what live your own personal truth sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like the first lie on earth. The first lie in the garden. You, if you taste the fruit, can be like God. You get to decide what's right and wrong. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you get to decide what's right and wrong. This is, the, this is a lie as ancient as time. Live your personal truth. No, you don't get to decide what's right and wrong. Right and wrong are descriptives of, of an objective standard that is always true no matter what. There is right and there is wrong, definitely. And it is only defined as what measures up against the character of God. God gets to say what is right and what is wrong, not me. I want, I want to live a life that is God-centered. I, wanna, I want to, to finish my life well. I want to live a good life. I want to look over the span of my life and see God's continued faithfulness. And I want it to be all about Him. I want it to be all about the praise and worship of God. If it's all about me, it will crumble and fail. I will gain whatever I can gain and find it empty. Man, that's what Ecclesiastes is all about, right? I have come and he found everything. He got everything. He was the richest man who ever lived. He had a thousand women. He had complete power. He had everything that the world says that you should want. And at the end he said, it's empty. It's meaningless. Without God, without a central focus on God, without a purpose that is God-given, I want to I spend my life in the service of Jesus. I want that for us as a people to run to and hold on to and proclaim and praise our rock of refuge. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good. So beautiful.